You know, as we were singing that song, I was thinking about what that really means. For us to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And if some of us really knew what that meant for the manifest presence of the Lord to show up in a strong way, if we really knew what that meant, would we be so quick to say, you're welcome here? Because when the presence of God shows up like that, change happens. For a brief moment, we see into the abyss of the, own, our, the darkness of our own hearts, which is not an easy thing to see, because when you see the glory and the holiness of God, your first response is like the prophet, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And so if you're content... To go through the religious motions and do your religious duty for the week and you're safe and comfortable in your own little ways and routine, then you don't really want the Holy Spirit here. Because when he shows up, he's going to move you out of that. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here to do whatever it is that you want to do. It doesn't just mean warm fuzzies going up your neck for the Holy Spirit to be here. It means radical transformation and hearts rendered and clean. Man, but that, that's a different sermon. <laughs> Today we're going to actually pick up where we left off in Romans 8. But in doing so, we're going to get there in a kind of a different way. Instead of starting out in Romans, I want us to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. So keep your finger in Romans 8 and turn over to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 22. What's going on here in this chapter is that King Saul has noticed the popularity of David that has just been growing and growing with the people. And Saul doesn't like it because he sees David's popularity as a threat to his own position. His infatuation with this has caused him to basically go crazy with hatred towards David, and he wants to kill him. And so David, after spending time serving Saul, is now running from him. He escapes to the wilderness where Saul pursues him with his army. Saul is so obsessed with getting rid of David that he has now focused all of his resources on killing him. And so we'll pick up in verse 1. Of 1 Samuel chapter 22, if you would stand with me as we read the word of the Lord this morning. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. Now there are about 400 men with him. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, you've already shown this morning that this message, God, this word that you are bringing, God, is, is so timely, has been so timely for so many people, even in this first service. So, God, I trust and I know that there are people here who need to hear what you, Holy Spirit, are saying to us. And so I ask that that would just be 
loud and clear to us? Would you open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive what you have for us? Lord, I pray that you would renew our first love, that you would stir within us a a new level of excitement of what it means to belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everything in the Bible points to the gospel. As I pointed out several times, David in the Old Testament is a type, a shadow of Christ. He represents Jesus as the Old Testament foreshadow of what was to come. Now David in this story here has already been anointed king of Israel. God chose him, called him out, and the prophet Samuel anointed him for that role. But Saul still occupied the throne. And so although David was the anointed king, he wasn't yet able to take his rightful place as ruler. Right now he's in the wilderness, far from uh, any royal environment that he was destined to live in. And while in the wilderness, we just read how all these men came to join him. They saw something in David that drew them to him. And these were uh, people who no member of royalty in their right mind would choose to associate with. No king would lower himself to the level of these basically lowlifes of society. I mean, these are men who were outcasts. They were in trouble. Some were fugitives. Some were in a lot of debt that they were trying to escape from. They all had something wrong with their lives. Not only that, but they all came from different backgrounds and nationalities, which was unique because this was a time where one's identity and association with his own people, his own kind, was essential to survival. Hebrews identified with Hebrews. Moabites associated with Moabites. Philistines with Philistines. And even in Israel, you had members of the 12, those 12 tribes of Israel associating just with people within their tribe. So what made this assembly with David so unique is that it was made up of men from different nationalities and different Tribes. It was a very diverse group, but they all had one thing in common, and that was their intense loyalty to David. These men left their homes, they left their families, they left their farms, they left everything to follow David. And these men stayed close to him his whole time in the wilderness. They fought with him, they ran with him, they suffered with him because they were so loyal. Now, David would eventually succeed Saul and rule over a united Israel. Let's fast forward to where David is now established on the throne and see what, have, what became of these men here, this ragtag group of men who followed and suffered with David this whole time. Second Samuel chapter 23 where it talks about David's men. So if you would turn over there for a minute. Second Samuel 23, it begins in verse 8. It says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua, Bashebeth, a Tachemanite, 
chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahoite. No wonder he was a bad dude. <laughs> you have a dad named Dodo, you're going to be involved in some fights growing up. He was one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shema, the son of Agi, a Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took a stand in the midst of the plot, defending it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a, a great victory. And I'm not going to continue to read this, but on and on and on it lists one man after another and these great deeds that they had, had done, accomplished as a mighty warrior for David, and the, the positions of authority that they had been placed in and how they were ruling over uh, groups of other um, warriors. Those who suffered with David in the wilderness were now promoted with him. They were made rulers in David's kingdom. And what you see in their stories is that these were men that many would call losers in life. They were men who no one would look at and expect anything great to come from. They were the ones who in high school would have been voted the least likely to succeed. But because of the one that they followed, they were men, ordinary men, who were able to accomplish extraordinary things. When Jesus came to earth, he was the anointed king who stepped out of the royal environment of heaven to reside for a time in the wilderness of this broken world. And although he was the anointed king of all kings, he wasn't yet able to sit on the throne until he accomplished what he came to do in this wilderness. And what he came to do, he said in John twelve thirty two, to draw all men to myself. But it wouldn't be just men. And it wouldn't be those that any king in his right mind would choose to associate himself with. He said he came for the sick, the poor, the needy, the outcast, the prisoner, the brokenhearted, the captive, the sinner. And he didn't just come for his own people, but those of all nations, which includes you and me. Those who followed David and suffered with him in the wilderness would eventually given places of honor in David's kingdom, they were promoted right along with him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19 for just a minute. Chapter 19, look at what Jesus said. Starting in verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much 
and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So we've got this same theme running from this Old Testament story in First and Second Samuel to the words of Jesus all the way to where we are in Romans chapter 8 today. So turn over there. We're going to start in verse 17. Last week we looked at how Paul was talking about what it means to have been made a son of God, children of God. And in verse 17 he says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now look. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That whole idea of suffering with someone that you are following and eventually being glorified to a position with them when they are. You know, a day is coming when Jesus is going to return and he's going to restore all things to himself. Every right or every wrong is going to be made right. Every injustice is going to be paid in full. Every tear wiped away. Satan will be defeated forever and the people of God will reign with our king for eternity. We don't know when that day is going to come. Only God the Father does. Jesus himself said the Son doesn't even know, but the Father only. But when that day comes, it's going to be at just the right time. It'll come not a day later than it should have or a day earlier than it should have, but at just the right time because God's timing is always absolutely perfect. But until that day does come, we're going to have to endure some things. We're going to have to encounter the hurt, the pain, the loss, the suffering of this broken world. And it says right here in the verse that we just read that until that day comes, we will endure suffering. Now, suffering is something that none of us in this room will ever be able to avoid or escape in this world. We all know it well, or if we don't, we're going to. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. I'm telling you, the suffering of this world has absolutely no limits, and it it affects every aspect or every facet of our lives, physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual suffering at times. Because of the devastating effects of sin and because Satan has been loosed on the earth and he is wreaking as much havoc as he possibly can, suffering is as omnipresent and inescapable as the air that we breathe. It doesn't discriminate and it has no age restrictions. It can hit us from the moment we come out of our mother's womb to the day that we are returned back to the ground. But truthfully, it can come even earlier than that. We cannot ignore the fact that over 3,000 voices of suffering every day go up to the ears of God from babies who are being murdered in the womb. What I'm about to say next goes completely against some of the ever-popular Americanized versions of the gospel that we sometimes like to hear or sometimes get duped into believing. But if you are a born-again follower of Jesus, 
suffering is something that you should actually expect to happen more so than for other people in the world. I know we don't like to hear that. We like to assume that because we are God's children, that God's going to do everything he can to protect us from the suffering of this world, that God is going to, you know, somehow put that overused hedge of protection around us at all times or that we're going to be zapped into heaven before all the real suffering starts. But if you actually read the New Testament, what you will find is that those who followed Jesus did not live the safe prosperous, protected lives. To follow Jesus meant following him right in some of the most horrific suffering you can go through. And why would it not? I mean, after all, this is a world broken by the effects of sin where Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour It is a world that absolutely despises truth and hates the name of Jesus with a passion and will stop at nothing in its efforts to wipe it out in its ravenous rage. To be a Christian in this world and expect to be immune from suffering, I mean, would be like taking a piece of fish and dropping it in hot grease and expecting it not to fry. When you encounter that hostile environment, it is going to happen. And I know we love those stories of the bullet that stopped just short of the soldier's heart because of the Bible that was in his chest pocket that stopped it, or the missionaries who had the natives coming to kill them, but they didn't because they saw the angels standing around their hut. And yes, I know that God does miraculously intervene in protective ways, but those instances are the exception rather than the rule. The rule is what Jesus said in John 16, In this world, you will have trouble. Not if, not might, not I hope you don't. It's going to happen. Get ready. It's going to happen. And sometimes we get all worked up trying to figure out and understand why bad things happen. And some people beat themselves up with guilt thinking that the bad things in their life are caused by something they did, that something that they are being punished for. But what it all boils down to is that the world is broken. It hates Jesus. And therefore, we aren't going to escape suffering any more than we can escape the effects of gravity. That's the way it is for now. But what we can't forget and lose sight of are those last two words I just said. For now. For now. It's what gives us hope in the middle of the suffering. It's what Paul is reminding us of right here in the middle of Romans chapter 8. There's two key things that help us endure the suffering that we're going to encounter in this world. One of them is that we're not left alone to deal with the suffering. Jesus himself said, I will not leave you as orphans. He sends the Holy Spirit to us, not to just be with us, but in us. Sealed. The second key thing is what Jesus said right after he told us there was going to be trouble in the world. He said, but fear not. I 
have overcome the world. What does that mean? The implications of the fact that Jesus has overcome the world are in what Paul says next. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to park on that for just a minute. You know, if we think about all the absolute atrocities that have occurred to people throughout human history and the incomprehensible levels of suffering that people have endured, this is a pretty bold an audacious statement that Paul has just made here. Because basically what he's saying is that no matter how horrific the suffering might have been that you have gone through, when you encounter the glory that's eventually going to be revealed to you in Jesus, that suffering is nothing. Don't ever tell someone who has gone through something traumatic that what they have been through was nothing. If you're going to say something like that, you better back it up. And maybe we could forgive Paul for making such a claim, thinking that he got just a little carried away in his excitement. I don't believe he did. I believe Paul knew exactly what he was saying and how audacious that was. And he said it with all the confidence possible because it wasn't Paul saying that. That was a Holy Spirit saying that through Paul. This isn't a man exaggerating a fact in order to make a point. This is the Holy Spirit saying, I know what you've been through and I know how horrible it's been because I was right there in the middle of it with you. But I'm telling you, what lies in store for you is so incredible That what you've been through, you will never give another thought to again. Never. In fact, it is so good and so glorious, you'll be able to look at it and actually think, that was worth it. If what I went through was part of my story that culminates in what I'm experiencing now, it was all worth it. That's how glorious it is that we have in store for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2.9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. The heart of man has not been able to comprehend the things that God has prepared for those who love him. How good is it going to be? Let's look at what Paul says next, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's going to be so good that all of creation itself is waiting in anticipation of it. You see, all everything else in creation is suffering the effects of sin just like you and I are. That's why we have ants that bite, bees that sting, predators that kill, drought, floods, wildfires, hurricanes, thorns, and Bahia grass. <laughs> I hate that stuff. 
Paul uses the analogy of experiencing the pains of childbirth. Now, childbirth pains obviously isn't a topic that I can speak from any experience on myself. But I can say that I've witnessed it. And from my observations of it, all I can say is my hat's off to you mothers. We had all four of our kids at home. Yes, on purpose. Let me change that before I get this cold, hard stare stare at me. (laughs) Carol had all four of our children at home. (laughs) And when I witnessed that for the first time, my respect level for my wife just absolutely skyrocketed. I got to brag on her for just a minute because she had no epidural, no medication at all to help her deal with the pain. It was her very first birth, and Maggie, our firstborn, came out at a whopping 10 pounds even. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when I saw her going through that, I was calling for an epidural for myself because I was hurting so bad. But for all you mothers who have experienced the pains of childbirth, as painful as that was, would you not say that what you went through was worth it? Was going through that much pain worth holding that baby in your arms? Of course it was. The pain that I witnessed my wife going through, as intense as it was, was not nearly as intense as the absolute joy and exuberance and love that I saw coming over her every time she held one of our children for the first time. There was no comparison. That's what Paul's talking about here when he makes this analogy. The sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to what's in store for us. You know, this world's trying to tell us that humans are killing the planet. There's just too many of us now, and we're all being too greedy for Earth's resources, and it's just too much for the planet to sustain. First, it was that man was causing the earth to cool, and we were headed for inevitable uh, another ice age. Now it's that we're causing the earth to warm, and the polar ice caps are about to melt. And that's the reason they say for all the wildfires and hurricanes and droughts and floods and the crazy things we see, the extremes in the weather. Folks, this isn't man-made climate change taking place. It's the pains of childbirth. It's all of creation groans in anticipation of what is fixing to come. Let's read on. Verse 23, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Where it says that we've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, what that essentially means is that by giving us the Holy Spirit, God has basically put a down payment on what he has in store for us. It is a glorious thing to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. In fact, it enables us to do kind of what happened with David's mighty men. It allows 
broken, rejected, ordinary people to be able to do extraordinary things. And the gifts of the Spirit that He has given us, that the Bible speaks of, the gifts that were given for the church for the time period between Jesus' ascension and His return, those gifts are, are there just to give us a taste of what we have to look forward to. Miraculous healing gives us a taste of the fact that we are going to live forever in restored, fully healed bodies for eternity. The gift of tongues that there will no longer be any language barrier at all among God's people. Words of knowledge give us just a taste of the fact that all things are going to be revealed to us. And the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit when they are evident and at work give us proof that even in the midst of the suffering, the presence of Almighty God Himself is right there with us. Paul says, in hope we have been saved. Hope here does not mean wishful thinking. It is the confident assurance. We are saved by the confident assurance that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The confident assurance that the only way I get in is through the blood of Jesus. By that confident assurance, we are saved now. We are in Christ now. And being in Christ now has some incredible things that come with that. We've been looking at some of what that means as we've been going through the book of Romans. And although there are incredible riches that are in store for us now being in Christ, there's even more that we have, but not yet. Our bank account is full, beyond full, but we're not able to make some of the withdrawals until God says it's time. Just like David was the anointed king, but he wasn't able to experience sitting on the throne and ruling until God said it was time. That is the right now, but not yet aspect of the gospel. Think about what it means for us to be saved now, but knowing that even better things await for us should cause a stirring to happen within us. This sense of excitement and anticipation to rise up inside of us like being a little kid again laying in bed on Christmas Eve. That kind of anticipation and excitement. And it's that expectation that enables us to endure the suffering of this world that we're going to go through for the time being. Just as Paul said with that last line, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I've told you about something that my grandmother would do quite often before, but many of you weren't here the last time I talked about it. But it has everything to do with what Paul is saying in this. My grandmother, the most godliest women I ever knew, if it was her five kids or myriad of grandkids that we were whenever any of us were going through something difficult something painful a struggle a suffering she would come to us and she didn't have all these words of wisdom and advice to give us in order to to tell us how to navigate through it she did something that was more powerful than any words of wisdom could have ever been she would walk up to us and take her little hands and cup our face, hold our face in her hands. And she'd look us in the eye. 
and simply say, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. You see, that woman was so full of the Holy Spirit that when she said that, it did something in here. And you knew that what she was saying was so true. And that all the anxiety and fear and worry that you had, whatever you were going through, man, it would just wash away every time she said that. She knows how true that is now because she's experiencing it for herself. There's a lot of fear and anxiety in what's going on in our world right now and the way our country is headed, but... You know, there's many people, even people of God, who are just down about it and fearful and it's like they're losing hope. Some of you are facing a personal struggle right now. Some of you are going through that suffering that I was talking about. This text here, right in the middle of Romans chapter 8, is God gently holding our face in his hands, looking into our eyes and assuring us it's going to be good. It is. He's saying, don't worry. Don't lose hope. I have overcome the world. And so I promise you, it's going to be so good. Just keep your eyes on me. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this world that we are living in now is not as good as it gets. And God, I thank you that as great and as glorious as it is to be Saved to have our sins washed away, to be made a son of the Father, to be accepted and renewed and made into a new creature. God, as awesome as that is, God, I thank you that that's not all. That there's even more. Oh, God, what an incredible thing to think of. Lord, I know that I don't often talk about what we talked about today. People always hear me say heaven is not, I mean, Christianity is not about heaven one day, but life right now. But God, I thank you that you do give us these reminders of the incredible glory that awaits when you return and you restore all things to yourself and you make all things right and you make all things new. God, we don't have the capacity within ourselves to even adequately come close to describing the goodness of what lies in store for your people. So God, I pray for those who are struggling right now. Like I said, God, I know that you brought this word in a timely manner for someone today. God, if it's just used to to lift someone's spirits in order to pick their face up from not looking at their struggle, but to look at you. Lord, thank you that that's happening. 
God, if there's anyone in here today who has never fully put their trust in you, they've just been relying on their own ability and talent and good looks to think that they're in and they're blessed, God, I pray that right now, Lord, they will realize that without you, without you fully, they don't have this to look forward to. They have nothing but the suffering left for eternity. God, would you wake them up this morning? Let them see the error of their ways, the reality of their sin, and the glory that is found in salvation in Jesus alone. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here to do whatever it is that you need to do in our hearts, in our lives, in this church body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.